As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to the Game Podcast from The Times. I'm Gregor Robertson. We're with you twice a week throughout the season for all the best reaction and analysis from some of the best football writers in the business. Joining me today are The Times' very own Gary Jacob and Martin Hardy. And for those wondering where Natalie Sawyer is, she's sunning it up, but she'll be back, thank God, on Thursday. Coming up on today's show, we'll be looking back on Celtic's Old Firm victory on Sunday with the Times Scottish football writer, Michael Grant. But first, a helter-skelter North London derby on Sunday left hearts racing, but plenty of questions about the progress of Unai Emery and Mauricio Pochettino's side. Spurs took a two-goal lead through Christian Eriksen and Harry Kane from the penalty spot, thanks to some calamitous Arsenal defending. Alexander Lacazette pulled one back before the break finishing emphatically after some equally dodgy defending from Spurs and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang poked in Matteo Guendouzi's delicious cross to equalise and, sh- and get a share of the spoils Gary, you were at the Emirates yesterday it was a breathless encounter brilliant for the neutral but pretty chaotic stuff from both sides pretty chaotic I think when you, when you look at the last five minutes especially in sort of injury time stoppage time when both teams were literally 80 yards apart both going for this for the winner which it was it was like a cup tie and it was like you know as, as Matt Dickinson writes today it's just like if, if you're Liverpool Manchester City you look at that and go in well you know these two teams are just not going to be up there with us at the end of the season it was so so naive so um, so all their deficiencies were there obviously there were some good points as well but you, it, it just was it just felt like a game that showed why these two aren't really going to close that gap this year it's just that they, they felt a little bit immature um, defensively suspect um, obviously also have got issues about knowing the balance of the team the ta- and, and, and pretty much the tactics seem to go out the window at, by half time obviously Tottenham had a game plan to suck Arsenal in and then and hit them on the break which is which is, which is fine and obviously did the trick but once it went to 2-1 it was just pure bedlam really Martin um, do you think Arsenal have got any chance of finishing third with uh, a central pairing of Socrates and David Luiz <laughs> They're playing football from the front if they are going to succeed in uh, coming third. And it's, I agree with what Gary said there and what Matt uh, alluded to this morning that it feels like everybody's playing for third place already because the game that Manchester City and Liverpool are playing is that much ahead of people that are trying to compete with them. So you've got this interesting take of whether Arsenal can kind of sustain the firepower through Aubameyang and Lacazette and therefore brush over the deficiencies that they showed yet again yesterday and I never like the phrase when people say it's Sunday league defending but <laughs> having, coached, having coached 
many a couple of years ago on the sixes and the, and the sevens. That first goal when Arsenal um, kind of moving back, it's so chaotic. It looked like children playing football. It's like, does anybody know where they're supposed to be going here? Are you trying to anticipate anything? Is there a structure? Whether that's good enough to finish third may be because there are not a great. It, it's not a great uh, bunch of competitors that are trying to break into that top two. See what have they got? Tottenham. Chelsea, Man United and themselves all seem like they're four teams in a state of flux at the minute trying to kind of plot a way forward or trying to find a realistic game plan to catch the top two. What might be interesting as well is the teams trying to catch them four. If there's a season to break in the top six, it feels like this might be it because them four just seem so vulnerable. Uh, Even Sissoko might not necessarily have been Tottenham's worst player and Winks might not be their worst player, but them two in the centre midfield looking at Tottenham's teams yesterday you're thinking how is this evolving stronger and it feels like it from the outside it feels like it isn't Arsenal's plan seems perhaps sometimes as chaotic as they're defending because you're still not quite sure what they're trying to do but can they finish third it's so open it's, it's difficult to say I think you know Gregor, you, you obviously saw, you saw the game. You saw the, the centre backs. There's an issue there with Socrates and Louise, and perhaps almost too similar in terms of neither one's prepared to drop off, and 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 the midfield balance. Would it? I mean, what do you think, Gregor? Yeah, I think um, I think we could see in the first goal clearly that both Socrates and Louise were sucked in, but I think unnecessarily. I think if you, obviously if Socrates was going to win that ball, as Saul Campbell said in the studios, you have to win it. Or you don't go, and then when the, the, in fairness, it was good movement from from Spurs. I think Lamella peeled off really well and cleverly, and but Louise again was sucked in, and, and he did the same against against Liverpool. So it does seem really really hard to envisage them keeping enough clean sheets, or, or certainly not conceding uh, many goals in games with those two that pairing. And 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 we we discussed a little bit before Gary about the the sort of imbalance in midfield. It seems that. Emery went to play that front three for kind of the first time and he thought he'd be a bit more cautious in midfield but it wasn't the right balance until Sabalos yeah. uh, came on uh, and, and with about an hour, an hour gone. Yeah, I think we, I mean, at the game, I think everyone looked at the team sheet and said it's it's all very well but who's going to play the ball to the front three? So he, he, he seemed to be sort of caught trying to be too cautious um, and I think he needs to be brave and decide... If he's if he's going to play the front three, then he may as well drop Xhaka because what does Xhaka actually do for him in terms of the team apart from often idiotic behaviour? <laughs> well, let's come to that. Let's come. Let's come he's to got, that. He, I mean, he he's got two holders in there. He, they can protect the back four, and then he needs someone to kind of put the transition to the to, to yeah. the front three. And yeah. it probably needs to be Sebalos or Willock or someone who can do that job. But the way he had it yesterday it didn't really feel because he, he's got David Luiz at the back and Luiz can play the long long balls into yeah. uh, a Bangham if, they, if they're going to go long and they're going to go dark, and they're going to put balls into, into the channels or, or between the, the full back and centre back then Luiz can do that anyway and he's probably a better passer of the ball than, than Xhaka anyway and and I think that he, I think probably Emery's having made Xhaka he's kind of probably having made Xhaka captain he's probably now feels he's got to play him but I think at some stage he's probably going to have to just realise that actually the team needs to involve and I've kind of if I'm with the front three going to play he can't play um, so that's going to be a big call the centre backs will probably change when Holding comes back I think and that might be a slightly a better combination Holding and, and Louise um, Socrates in the first I've seen him three times this season and he's, he's, he's found it difficult 
trouble in the air to it, Burnley gave him trouble in the air Liverpool gave him trouble in the air and I think he's just poor in the air so that will probably change and maybe when um, you know when the full and Arsenal have got their full backs playing maybe yeah, they have got improvements to come they have, got they have got... And, and as have Spurs as well what would, what would Emery's preferred uh, formation be given that that seemed real tactical naivety at Liverpool when he played a narrow diamond against a team that's full-backs or two of the most creative players in the country. And then it's a big change to, to go for the three, effectively kind of up front yesterday. What, what is his preferred system with the players that he has at Arsenal? That's what the curiosity is looking from the outside. No, no, it's, it's where, good, where are they heading? It's a good question. I don't think he. I don't think he knows. I don't think he knew, he knew last season. He sort of started with the four at the back, then then went to 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 a to wing back system because he just yeah. didn't trust the centre backs. And I think it's the same this year. He just doesn't know his. He's got all these new players, and he doesn't know how to kind of fit them all into the same team and what's going to be the best formation. Um, it will probably end up as four two. Three one um, in some, but the, 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 the thing that's noticeable. How do you accommodate Lacazette? Well, I think I think that's that, that's the thing that's noticeable is that Aubameyang doesn't like being out on the left. No. He, he looks much better when he's in tandem with Lacazette. So somewhere along the line, they've got to decide if those two play up front together. How does it work back from from those two? Yeah. And to still get the width because if they're too narrow, then the fullbacks have to provide the width. And yeah. Kalasnik probably could provide the width, but he's just a he's great going forward. But he's hopeless going back, and he's not going to—he's not going to protect your left back if it's if it's him. When Tierney comes in, it might be different. When Bellerin's back, it might be different. But these are all things that are, are some way off, and obviously, the, yeah. so uh, it, you know, it's a good question, and I think everyone, every Arsenal fan is asking the same question: is that how is this all going to work, and um, how are you going to find the best of these the, these players? And Pepe looks like he's got glimpses, but he looks he looks like he's going to have to spend time to kind of adjust the game. His final pass yesterday was a little bit poor, or his final shot was scuffed, and I think he just needs a little bit of time to kind of adjust as same there's, there's no doubt that that, that front three is, is going to be a danger this season that's just how Emery best sort of arranges his, his uh, players behind that and, and, who, and who they are and obviously well, I think we have to just touch on Xhaka because it it does seem sort of how, how it reflects on Arsenal that he is their captain and he's making so many reckless reckless kind of uh, decisions like this and the fifth penalty he's given away since he joined in 2016-17 which more than any anyone in that time, he, he is a bit of a liability. What, what do you think that does say about uh, about Arsenal that he's that he's their captain, Martin? <laughs> um, I don't know. You, you, you're watching that challenge yesterday in such a big game, and the, the cap, yeah, your captain can lead by example, but there's got to be a cooler head and a bit more thought process to, to all of that that goes in. And it, it's interesting, Gary, saying that Emery might have backed himself into a corner by making him his captain. So suddenly, it's more difficult to leave him out of the team. Um, you, you just cannot the Arsenal were fortunate to equalise just before sorry to pull a goal back to before half time to get themselves back into the game and sorry just to go back to the point before about can Arsenal finish third it feels and I've gone through the four in my head the last hour or two Spurs are the team that seems more settled and they know what they're doing now I think they should have kicked on further but because they, they, they have a reliability they have a system that they've been using for the last couple of seasons that is something that Chelsea, Man United and Arsenal don't have. That might be enough to get them to third place, even though they've lost against Newcastle United and even though they lost an incredible amount of Premier League games last season. They have the sense of structure um, and to choose the wrong captain, which I think is what we're kind of hinting upon here. It's also, who, it's also who, who the other options are. That's kind of the point as well. I'm not sure, I'm not sure yeah. who they have that's kind of... 
who really sort of fits the bill. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, you were a player, Greg, so you know. I mean, when Emery has five captains, what does that? What if you're a player? I know it's a very, team? it's a very modern, very modern approach, and we've seen this. You know, we've seen managers letting letting the players choose who's going to be a captain. Mm. Um, so it's a very modern thing. I just think that really, when you look at um, Arsenal's experienced players, they're, they're, a lot of them are kind of the players who are making mistakes and are, are sort of most reckless. So um, I just think that, that is a that is a worry for Arsenal. I think that's worth worth looking at now. Really, there seems to be we've, the word we've used a lot already is chaos, and there seems to be that chaos um, sort of is reigning in the in the race for for the top yeah. six. Liverpool and Manchester yeah. City swept aside Burnley and, and Brighton respectively on Saturday um, but Chelsea and, and Manchester United faltered again Chelsea could only manage a 2-2 draw with Sheffield United uh, Manchester United were paid back after Daniel James had given Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's team the lead and all, at the same time West Ham got a, got a really good 2-0 win against Norwich Leicester 3-0 win against Bournemouth Jamie Vardy scored two and he's he's firing on all cylinders Everton great win against Wolves 3-2 2 for Richarlison all these teams seem to have improved over the summer Martin and there was talk about the big six being being kind of breached this, se- this season at the start of the season do you think it looks even more likely now? No absolutely and I've, I've I admire the Brendan Rodgers the, the style his teams play and he's carried that into Leicester very very quickly bear in mind he came at the club last year uh, sorry early this year earlier this year yes what he's done very quickly is he's put his stamp on the team now they are a team that you think if anybody's going to take on um, that sixth place they might be the one they haven't got the Europa League to worry about they uh, you know you look at Madison and the two goals Jamie Vardy scored were outstanding both first time finishers um, he's created a system whereby Leicester like to control the ball which is what one of Rodgers' kind of key elements to his style but at the same time because Vardy's so quick and they have Madison and sometimes Iota Perez beside them they can counter really quickly as well so, so they can mix their game up defensively they look quite strong I won't try and pronounce the, the Turkish young the Turkish defender <laughs> <laughs> very difficult but I've seen him play and I thought he was about 35 and found out he was 23 yeah. he really looks a prospect but again they paid £20 million from last year and they've waited for him to develop till Harry Maguire leaves I think they're one of the ones to really keep an eye on, and, and at the same time, they played Newcastle in the in the League Cup, and they only made two changes. And we, we spoke to Brennan after um, Leicester had won at Sheffield United, and he said we really want to win a cup of this club, and stood that up with his team selection. Um, as I said, stylistically, I like watching them, but they, they really seem like a team that you want to keep an eye on. And there is that possibility of Everton, um, Wolves, perhaps West Ham, really challenging that fifth or sixth place because as we've said already Man United and Chelsea are teams very much in development um, you suspect well, you, you, you think they will get stronger as the season goes on certainly with regards to Manchester United but that's not necessarily a given Chelsea give up a 2-0 lead against Sheffield United and Sheffield United just show how much fight, fight they've got inside of them so it's going to be really really interesting to watch that develop this season obviously we're only four games and the league table doesn't make a great deal of sense at the minute apart from the top two but Leicester sitting in third place, Everton, Everton sitting in sixth, West Ham seventh. These are teams that, if they can add consistency to the talent that they have, have a realistic chance of changing the top structure of the English football, which perhaps needs to happen. You, you, you need that six to be breached by one or two clubs just to um, 
keep the interest going, I yeah. think. OK, there was another huge derby north of the border on Sunday. The old firm between Celtic and Rangers. And we have Michael Grant, Scottish football correspondent, on the line to discuss it now. Well, Michael, it was a, a typically furious and intense game. Almost it almost escaped without a, a red card until Jordan Jones absolutely clattered Moritz Bauer in the 95th minute. Um, yeah. Last season's opening old firm game, which you got me a ticket for, actually, um, it was similar in that there was a lot of talk about Rangers closing the gap, uh, the great strides being taken under Steven Gerrard, but ultimately Celtic superiority was kind of showing up in the end. And you, you've asked in, in your piece today why... Why had so few fancied Celtic and, and why had Rangers been favourites to win? What, why do you think that was? I think um, what you tend to get in, in the, the old firm game, Gregor, or, or the old firm rivalry is that when, when one of the teams has been, uh, you know, second best for some time and, and then it then it looks like it's improving and it looks like it's getting closer and, and that the gap is narrowing. There's, there always is a lot of noise around them and a lot of claims made on their behalf. Now, Stephen Gerrard has been pretty canny um, uh, overall in, t- in terms of his time at uh, Rangers. He's not made huge boasts and huge claims about where they are and, and how close they are and all the rest of it. Um, I think he's, he's judged it pretty well. But, you know, around Rangers, a lot of... A lot of former players and a lot of um, uh, you know commentators and pundits are quick to talk them up. So you know, I, I, and I think that was there was fuel given to that fire by by the fact that they won both games at Ibrox last season um, after a run of I think twelve when they hadn't won any old firm game. So uh, you know, I don't think there's any doubt that Rangers have improved, and I don't think Celtic will feel that they. That they didn't have to work hard for their win uh, on Sunday, but um, I think the difference this time was that Celtic's attitude was good from the start. Their aggression was good. Their tactics were good. It was a good side. They got big performances from from a lot of key players right across the side, and I think when all of those things are right, you know they have marginally better players than than Rangers, and and that's what's. That's what that's what showed. I mean, the second goal was was a breakaway goal in the last minute when Rangers are are piling forward to get an equaliser. But um, the, the first one, the game the, the game changing goal was was really just a, a defensive mistake by Rangers, capitalised on brilliantly by Celtic and by Odson Edouard. And, and you know that difference in quality uh, is going is going to settle old firm games just now. Big result for Neil Lennon too after Celtic's failure to qualify for the Champions League and as you said there was a few question marks about some of Celtic's summer signings but they all performed and, and Chris, Christopher Julian in particular was, was pretty impressive at, at the heart of Celtic's defence Yeah I mean I, I think looking forward obviously you know you get the immediate thrill if you're Neil Lennon of, of, of winning the game and, and that's going to relieve a lot of pressure on him you know going into the international break it would have been it would have been pretty grim for him if Celtic had gone out of the Champions League and then lost the first Old Firm game of the season and been three points behind. Um, you know, and, and if they had lost yesterday, there would have been a lot of attention on the signings and the recruitment and and um, the quality of, of players coming in, bearing in mind that Kieran Tierney's gone out and Dedrick Boyata's gone out and Michael Lustig's gone out and Philip Benkovic went out. So a lot of quality left the team. Uh, and And... There was question marks, to put it mildly, over the arrival. So I think that's what's going to be doubly satisfying for Lennon from yesterday was that um, he he got such good 
performances from from nearly all of the new guys, or certainly all the new guys across the back. Julian was uh, was very commanding. This. Seven million pound um, centre half they got from Toulouse. He'd looked a little bit, you know, he'd, he'd just not quite settled and not quite looked value for money. But um, he certainly did yesterday. The two fullbacks, um, Hatem El Hamed, the Israeli, who's had a bit of a stop-start opening to the season because of injury. He was he was very solid. I was very impressed with him yesterday. And Bolly Bolingoli, who they signed from Rapid Vienna for three million pounds, left back Tierney's replacement. He has had a very erratic and patchy start to his career at Celtic. Um, he was dropped by Lennon for the home game against Cluj when they ultimately got knocked out of the Champions League qualifiers. But Bolingoli played well last night. So, you know, I, it, very reassuring for for Lennon that um, he, he's got some good players in. Back to uh, Rangers for a moment. Obviously, Liverpool fans in particular down here keep a keen eye on Steven Gerrard's progress with perhaps yep. one eye in the future. Do you think, how long do you think the patience of Rangers fans is going to continue before? I mean, the pressure's enormous on, on him up there, as you well know. And how, how, how long do you think he's going to have the Rangers fans on his side? Is it just as long as we're seeing progress, or is he going to have to bridge that gap completely pretty soon? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be essential for him to win. A trophy this season with Rangers. It's really extraordinary that they haven't won anything um, for I think it's eight years now. In, you know, in terms of the three major trophies, obviously they were in lower leagues for four seasons, but at no point have they really, um, uh, you know, when they reached the Scottish Cup final, lost it to Hibs. But uh, Gerard needs to do that. I mean, last season there was a progress of getting into the Europa League group stage, and there was a progress of a couple of old firm. Uh, victories at Ibrox, but they went out of both club, both cups to Aberdeen in uh, in Glasgow, which um, is a sore one for Rangers to take. You know, this season, this summer, there was another kind of swell of of uh, belief uh, around Gerard, and I would say that the Rangers fans, the majority of Rangers fans, still very much buy into having Stephen Gerrard. They, they they like the kind of charisma. They like. Uh, like a lot of what he's done with the team in terms of um, rebuilding it and getting it playing some good free scoring football in general but he is a young manager you know he's still finding his feet and there are there are games when it doesn't he doesn't get it right he, in hindsight he didn't get it right yesterday the team wasn't quite right the tactics weren't quite right um, but you know you're not seeing the Rangers fans uh, turning on Gerrard and I don't think they will unless it becomes clear that they're falling well behind Celtic again in the Championship and also they don't make an impact in the Cups. I mean really Rangers need to be winning a trophy this season too for the fans to sustain the level of belief that they still have in Gerard. Okay, look Michael, that's brilliant. I thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Okay, so Newcastle drew one all with Watford uh, on Saturday. Martin, you've you've written a piece about primarily about Almiron today. Newcastle's record signing in January for for twenty million since been surpassed by the arrival of Joe Ellington. 
but he's yet to find the net for Newcastle but you've written in today's paper that you think he has significantly altered the way Newcastle play with his speed on the counter attack but getting the best from him is still going to be really vital for, for Newcastle and Steve Bruce this season no, hugely. I mean, of all the millions of words that have been written about Steve Bruce arriving at Newcastle, not many have concentrated on what his mandate actually is, which is from those inside the club, which is to get Newcastle playing a more progressive style of football and to play a more attacking style of football. To that end, and as usual, there is the kind of the, there's chaotic sense behind the scenes in that the supporters are unhappy. There is a boycott going on which means the crowd on Saturday was the lowest Newcastle have had for a Premier League game for seven years so all this is going on in the meantime Newcastle have spent £80 million this this calendar year on three forwards in um, the pronunciation which <laughs> Steve Bruce calls him Big Joe but it's actually <laughs> yelling on <laughs> I think Big Joe is easier for Steve uh, Miguel Almiron and Alan Simaximin who is injured and out for four, another four weeks so the idea is to get Newcastle moving further up the field Rafa Benitez's style was was very compact and made the team very difficult to beat um, and Ayote Perez and Salomon Rondon who have both left the club and have 20, provided 23 Premier League goals last season which is a lot, an awful lot to lose benefited hugely from Almiron's arrival in January where he suddenly there was space and pace and Newcastle could break with a bit more purpose he did miss a chance, I think it was in his first game, it might have been against Huddersfield Town when he hit the post. And many, many moons ago, um, uh, Newcastle had a player called John Dahl Thomason, who missed a, a really good opportunity on his first game, didn't succeed in Newcastle, and then went on to do outstandingly well with AC Milan. So it's kind of, you tr- you're trying to say to people, just be a bit patient. This player is, is a good player. Um, when we spoke to Isaac Hayden after the game, he said he's a great finisher in training. But there was a nice phrase that Steve Bruce said where he said the best finishers are calm. They have a presence, they know what they're going to do, whereas at the minute, Miguel Almiron is snatching at a chance of panicking. But the, 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 it is a team, like, like a lot of teams at the minute, they're in transition in terms of they're trying to play a more offensive game and Almiron becomes important, an important part of that. But what Xavier Grazi did so well on Saturday was he played three centre-halves, two midfielders in front of him and there was very little space for any castle to play Whereas the previous Sunday away at Tottenham, there was an awful lot of space to counter, and Almiron had one of his best best games for Newcastle. But unquestionably, the longer it goes that he has not scored, and we are now in September and he arrived in January, the more question marks there are going to come upon him. But he is playing, he is impacting upon the team in a positive way still. As you said, the, the great win last week at Spurs, and to follow that with the lowest crowd. Uh, since 2012, just over 44,000. Mm. That kind of suggests the the deep deep underlying issues there. What what's it going to take for Steve Bruce to kind of feels like it's going to take something pretty remarkable for him for, well, for him to get the fans on side really. It, it, it's always usually complex, but he desperately needed a cup run, which he knew. But the game against Leicester, Newcastle had seven changes from the team that won at Tottenham. A lot, admittedly, enforced through injury. But Jellington was back. Um, Yesterday, sorry, on Saturday, two or three other players who had missed the, the, the cup defeat came back, and the, the huge gamble of signing somebody like Andy Carroll, who is still take your pick between two and five weeks away from playing football again, means you didn't have a backup striker for the game in the League Cup tie. So Newcastle failed to reach the last 32 in the League Cup. In the FA Cup under Mike Ashley's reign, they have never got beyond the fourth round in 12 seasons, which is a really damning statistic. 
So when you speak to supporters, they haven't had that glory trail of one season where you're in a quarter final at wherever and you win, or there is a semi final and you've got a trip to Wembley. So you've taken the romance out of that situation to make it a purely hard business transaction, if you like, in terms of we need to finish 12th, therefore we have to scrap the Cups, which we actually did once say on record, record of the fan forum. For Bruce, for Steve Bruce to succeed, he needs to do well in the FA Cup, but in the meantime, he needs to get the team playing, as he keeps saying, higher up the pitch, to be more creative, to be more inventive, to have a little bit more flair, but the risk in doing that is that you then start to break up that pragmatic approach at the back under Rafa Benitez, which served the club well in terms of staying in the Premier League twice. So that's the gamble he has to make. On top of all that, Dwight Gale's out for another three to four weeks. Andy Carroll is between two and six weeks. St. Maximin is out between for another four weeks. So the firepower that was supposed to change the way Newcastle played football is not available at the minute, which makes his job that bit more difficult. Okay. Well, there was um, a VAR non-decision. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was a VAR non-story, to be quite honest. <laughs> a VAR non-story? Okay, well, see, we, do, we don't want to speak about VAR every week here, but it seems sort of uh, unavoidable <laughs> at the moment. And obviously the incident was involved Isaac Hayden, who appeared to handball accidentally, but they, them's the rules at the moment uh, in the yeah. build-up to, to the equaliser. Uh, and we've already seen goals chalked off for, for handball this season at, at uh, Wolves against Leicester Manchester yeah. City uh, late, late win against Spurs what did you make of that and, and where's the where's the consistency I, Isaac Hayden didn't know that if it hit his hand because we asked after, after after the game he said I don't know if it hit my hand does that matter um, <laughs> the two managers didn't have any idea that it hit his hand Not there wasn't one appeal from Watford players when the incident happened so there's a nice there's a nice word Michael Walker used today to describe VAR as disruptive it's like this noisy person in the class that you just wish somebody would shut up <laughs> if, 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 if VAR is going to come into a situation where nobody's even aware that something's actually happened then we are crossing the line of um, a clear and obvious error but it's already but, done that this season that's the yeah, point of course, of course but, the, but this is not a Luddite but we we've had to be so careful with VAR and now do we want the micromanagement of the game so you, Technically, if you carry it through the consistent argument, then yes, the goal should have been disallowed, but nobody actually saw it. Yeah. There was no appeals from anybody. And even inside the Newcastle press room at half time, there was about 15 different angles of that uh, goal shown. Nobody had realised then that it hit Isaac Hayden's hand. It was only another angle that was shown to somebody on the mobile phone, whether that came through Twitter, I'm not quite sure, to say, ah, it's perhaps hit Isaac Hayden on the arm as it's dropped. So, what do we say? Technically, it should have been disallowed. Which I suppose, in light of what's happened this season, yes. But when nobody's actually aware that it's happened, that's very difficult to make that call. So, okay, well, we'll move on from that one because there were other decisions. <laughs> and Peter Walton, the former Premier League referee, has written a, an interesting piece in today's paper, in which he says that the Premier League is already reaching a bit of a crossroads with this. A lot of money has been spent on the technology, yet. The Premier League are missing opportunities to get game-changing decisions right. Um, he argues there was there was a foul on on Sebastian Allaire, uh, West Ham centre forward this weekend. Yuri Tielemans could arguably have seen red yeah. for a tackle of Callum Wilson. Gary, the the, the high bar, mm. sort of the high threshold, is is one thing, and it's understandable. But 
with the technology is there why why are we not using it i think sometimes you would like them just to go to the side of the pitch to have a look for themselves and and just run across and and as peter walton said it's one in three games on average statistics so i don't think anyone would be and we saw it last season anyway with the Champions league when tottenham played man city we saw the the referee running across and just checking on on the lorente goal and and so it's if the technology is there fans are asking why aren't we looking at that and, and, and should that and and should that not be sort of chalked out Chalked, chalked off or, or, or whatever so I think perhaps they probably need to kind of do that but the, the, the thing that I sort of noticed so far with the VAR was more with the, with the, with the um, assistant referees that um, in a couple of games I've been at they're flagging quite early and I thought the whole point of sort of was, was to kind of let the game flow in actually to see so what happens with that move so well, we uh, saw that and in, in particularly in the Super Cup between yeah. Chelsea and Liverpool there yeah. were some really late flags and the defenders were getting a bit miffed about it as well yeah but then that's what they did it's awesome against Burnley where Darren Can had two decisions with the flag one he got absolutely spot on was a, a foot offside and, and, and the other one wasn't right so Perhaps the and, and there was one yesterday where obviously Arsenal thought they scored a win and, and the, the linesman got a really wonderful call that Kolasnik was offside. But let's say he wasn't offside and there was a mistake and you flagged, then it's it's changed. I thought the whole point as far was to perhaps let the let the move develop and then perhaps look at it. And so maybe you sort of the referees and officials need to kind of slight. It's a slow process for them as well to kind of re- relearn what they've learned for thirty years, perhaps, you know, and perhaps be a little less trigger happy sometimes probably and maybe and maybe refer it but you know um i don't know whether we people people in the stand will get annoyed by every five minutes going across or you know once a game going across and looking at i don't know i think there's a lot of uncertainty still in the stadiums you feel that no one's quite sure are they looking at var they're not looking at var what's the, what's the, the, the communication still needs to be better i think one of the things in the Women's World Cup when England played America that seemed quite obvious is a couple of decisions you thought that's a blatant offside but as Gary said there correctly that they have said keep your flag down just in case you're wrong and then they'll get the game flows and we can always call it back whereas the Premier League game same as Gary that I've been to this year the flags are going up really quick Yeah, it's a different kettle of fish being at a World Cup game against a passionate Premier League ground in the 88th minute when you know as a linesman you think it's offside and you've got 50,000 people screaming blue murder at you so that, Perhaps that's why the flag goes up, or perhaps it, it's still some match to uh, iron out the flaws in the in the original state of the, the whole thing. What I got annoyed about was far from the very start was nobody said to the supporters, "Do you want your game disrupted?" To the, to the people that pay to go and watch football, the magic of a moment of a goal is is one of the great. Them, those goals can be the greatest moments of your life. Now it gets reviewed, so therefore we don't know if that's actually happened. Give us five minutes. We're going to go and check. So yes, I want as little disruption in the flow of a game of football as possible. I think the that, great that, the, that, the, the, the speed of the game is it's part of its beauty. The, the Grealish one was bonkers, though, when you look at it, because I mean, it doesn't even look like this the Aston Villa against yeah. Crystal Palace. I mean, did yeah. you think the referee even blew his whistle? It doesn't look like him. From the <laughs> images. Um, well, if he says he did, I'm sure he did. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 but I mean, it's rare for us as viewers to hear the, the whistle that loud and he's in the centre circle so you have to ask yourself how would the microphone possibly pick that up um, and also it just if you look at that one as well um, would, would the referee really have blown in that circumstance if he's meant to let the, let the, let the mood develop and then, and then say and it's 
and, and, and even if he did did blow the whistle, would you? And, and I'm not sure if he did. But would you? Would you? Would there be enough time not for the for the defence to have been set? I mean, literally, that's it was a, a split good, second, wasn't it? When Grealish put it to the right. That's a good point. I can't believe a defender would have heard that no. and then reacted to that. No, no I agree. I think that that happened so. The goal was scored so quickly after the yeah. after the moment of the the dive in question from from Grealish that it really wouldn't have affected the the outcome of the action afterwards but if he's blown the whistle you have to stop from there so that's more of a human yeah. a human error one technical point you had much go in the, just before Lacazette scored was there an Arsenal appeal for a penalty for handball yeah there was yeah so is Danny Rose handball the goal yeah. could have been scored but it could have been disallowed and called back for the penalty uh, it happened quite a long time beforehand I think they had t- opportunities to Sanchez had opportunities to clear the, the ball as well the fans were still appealing for the penalty weren't yeah. they the move that followed and then lack of that score there was a corner a corner or set piece that came in and yeah the ball bounced up and hit sort of Danny Danny Rose's arm yeah and then they were appealing and then it sort of all came from that yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't know if that would have got reviewed or not or at what point they would have then gone back to look at that Right, we're crawling down a wormhole now, so we'll we'll leave the VAR chat there. Do you like it? Do you like it, Gregor? Um, I'm yet to be. I'm I'm on the fence. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard. I change my mind every week about it. But anyway, um, finally, Gary, you've written a a fascinating piece in today's today's game about pretty remarkable family lineage of former Chelsea and and Barcelona forward Ida Good Johnson. Tell us a bit about that piece. Well, obviously, Ida's father played and, and he played famously for, for um, Anderlecht and, and, and had a penalty saved against uh, Tottenham in the 84 um, UEFA Cup final um, against uh, Tony Parks. And obviously, Ida played for Chelsea and now Ida's three children and playing. So he's got two at the at the Real Madrid Academy and he's got uh, his oldest boy, Svenian, plays in uh, for Spezia in Italy. Um, and interesting thing is he, he, he said that um, you know they've all got good, different characteristics his oldest boy looks a lot like him on the field and runs like him makes a similar runs the youngest boys are, are, are different um, Daniel and Andre and, and but they've all now got the bug and they all want to play and it's just also it's just interesting to, to, to hear him talk about um, not wanting them to necessarily be footballers, but obviously it's their it's their it's their sort of um, passion, and they've they've picked it up with him. And and he also makes the point that his 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 grandfather, so his father's father, was also a player, but he was a he was a fisherman in the north of Iceland, and so basically <laughs> no one saw him. He was in the lower leagues, and he will says he's the best he's the best player, but um, of of the family. So um, I mean, it must be difficult for a Guyonson to have that as your your surname as soon as you get on the pitch. Yeah, you know to to kind of had that around your neck of what your father did what your what your grandfather did and that's and plus you're coming out of the big academies in in spain you know good luck to them and hopefully they do well but it's it's not going to be easy for them okay no it's fascinating piece okay well that's it for now many thanks to my guests today gary jacob martin hardy and michael grant remember you can subscribe to the times and the sunday times to enjoy award-winning journalism online and on your smartphone or tablet it's just one pound a week for an eight-week trial search the times subscription for more information and we'll be back on thursday to me. Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.